Hey, my friends, we will be right back to the show, but I have a question for you. Are you struggling with the impact of childhood trauma? Well, know that you're not alone. I'm here to let you know that I'm starting a brand new weekly coaching group that includes a year of life coaching, accountability, support, habit and goal setting, and more. I'm starting a waitlist for the group right now, and I'm only taking a handful of people. And I'll let you know that through this personalized coaching, we'll work together to help you understand how your childhood trauma has shaped your beliefs, behaviors, emotions, and will help you create a roadmap for healing and growth. Right now, you can schedule an absolutely free coaching session with me and get put on the wait list if you go to thinkunbroken.com. My friends, it's your time to turn your trauma into triumph, breakdowns into breakthroughs, and become the hero of your own story. And I'm here to support you in doing that. Just go to thinkunbroken.com to register for a free coaching call with me and to get put on the wait list for the brand new weekly coaching program. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey, my friends, we will be right back to the show, but I have a question for you. Are you struggling with the impact of childhood trauma? Well, know that you're not alone. I'm here to let you know that I'm starting a brand new weekly coaching group that includes a year of live coaching, accountability, support, habit and goal setting, and more. I'm starting a waitlist for the group right now, and I'm only taking a handful of people. And I'll let you know that through this personalized coaching, we'll work together to help you understand how your childhood trauma has shaped your beliefs, behaviors, emotions, and will help you create a roadmap for healing and growth. Right now, you can schedule an absolutely free coaching session with me and get put on the wait list if you go to thinkunbroken.com. My friends, it's your time to turn your trauma into triumph, breakdowns into breakthroughs, and become the hero of your own story. And I'm here to support you in doing that. Just go to thinkunbroken.com to register for a free coaching call with me and to get put on the wait list for the brand new weekly coaching program. You're listening to the Think Unbroken podcast, and I'm your host, Michael Unbroken. I'm an author, speaker, coach, and advocate for adult survivors of childhood trauma and abuse. In this podcast, you will learn how to transform your trauma into triumph, turn breakdowns into breakthroughs, and go from victim to being the hero of your own story. You can learn more at thinkunbrokenpodcast.com. And of course, check us out on Apple Podcasts and Spotify at Think Unbroken Podcast. And ownership is a scary word to people because we spend so much time just being okay with the fact that it's somebody else's fault. And so in that, you have to understand something so important that ownership is really about putting your feet on the ground and saying, I am the one in control of my life. Because the reality is nobody breathes for you. Nobody lives for you. Nobody loves for you. You are the only one capable of doing these things. But so much of that really starts with how you think about yourself in the world. Again, what you think becomes what you speak. What you speak is your actions. Your actions then become your reality. Talk about the pendulum swing about the way you used to talk to yourself versus the way you talk to yourself now. Oh my gosh, the way I used to talk to myself. Oh, poor Gracie. I was so mean, especially when I had just come out of my family's house. And that's when I really started taking a deep look at my PTSD and everything that had occurred from ever since I was a baby. 
And I just was so, I was very critical of myself. I was very demeaning. I was very demoralizing. I was also very self-pitying. Why me? Why did this happen to me? And, you know, oh, you're so stupid. Why can't you do this? Right. Um, and I think that part of that was something that I took on from my abusers. And I'm going to give myself grace because when you're around that and it's a constant, you constantly hear it, they're going to kind of come into your head as tapes. Um, but awareness, mindfulness, uh, that really was what helped me look at what it was that I was saying to myself. And yoga especially is what helped for me. Um, just doing the poses. And if I couldn't get a pose right, that's where I would start to see like this really critical and negative voice come up and be like, why can't you do this? You can't do anything right. Um, but that's where it really taught me awareness, where a thought would come up. Don't just look at the thought. Don't get attached to it and let it pass. And the more I did that, the more I started to choose which thoughts I wanted. Like, oh, you're doing great. Okay, this thought can stay. You're doing terrible. That thought can go. I don't want that thought. Like, that does not serve me. So I'm just going to let that one go. And it's definitely, it's taken practice. But I went from depressed, anxious, self-hating um, to now like this really optimistic, grateful, loving person. And it's so much that it just bubbles over and other people feel it too. And I think that that's the biggest gift of healing. It not only heals yourself, but it heals other people around you. So what you say to yourself, how you treat yourself and how you feel is honestly a ripple effect. Like here you are and you just send out these vibrations so you might as well make them good ones, right? Because not only are you going to feel good, but you're also going to help other people around you feel better. Yeah, that, I love that. I love that. The, the vibrations are everything, right? And, and you mentioned something, I think two things really important. One, I touch on quickly. The, the power of yoga was so incredible for me and my journey and many people's journey because it's actually the first time for most of us that we actually have to stop and be in our own body. So when you're growing up in trauma, you're growing up in a cortisol state, you're hyper vigilant, you have fight or flight just always turned on, your body's never at rest, your brain is never at rest. And in yoga, it's funny, I won't share his story, but my little brother was like, dude, I was in yoga a couple of weeks ago and I was just bawling. And I was like, yeah, dude, because you never took five seconds to be alone with yourself. And so if you're on the fence about yoga, like it's, I don't think that it's something that should be taken lightly in terms of the power that it has to create change in your life. Um, and the other thing you mentioned was gratitude. Gratitude is so difficult for people to wrap their head around because it's something that right now is very common in the, the, the space of healing and personal development. But I don't think people really tap into the power of it because for me, gratitude is looking at not only the micro wins in my life and going, good job, man. And I try to instill this into my clients and the people I work with, but can you celebrate the big things also? And more so, can you show appreciation to the world? It's really easy to be like grief stricken and look at your life and go, I hate this. The world is terrible. I was there. I raised my hand. Trust me. I'm one of the first people to admit this. But when I started stepping into gratitude in this way, where I was just looking for something to celebrate or be happy about, there was this tremendous change in my life because I recognized it's not always as dark as it looks. What was it like for you to go and step into gratitude? What has that journey been for you? I got to say, I am so excited to talk about this one because this one is like my absolute favorite. And that's why my Instagram name, I am Grateful Grace. Uh, but Michael, I was right there with you a few years ago. I was 19 and I'm just like, my therapist like started gratitude journals. I'm like, what? I have, no there's nothing in my life to be grateful for. My life sucks. You know, so I was right there on the grief train with you, but I just, I forced myself every single night, I would sit down and I would find what I was grateful for. And it started off as I'm grateful for air and I'm grateful for water. You know, <laughs> I was so miserable back then. Oh my gosh. But the more I did it and it was like maybe two or three nights in a row where I was like grateful for air, grateful for water. But then it started to turn into more like, okay, I'm grateful for, I'm grateful for life. I'm grateful for the lunch that my grandma made me. And I just, I stuck with it. I stuck with it. 
And I, I would have to really look into my journals and see how long that first gratitude journal practice was. Um, but I then started to really stick with it. And I tried to do it consistently every single night. And basically, I got to a point where I did it almost every single night. I, I, I can't say that it was 100%, but for three years. And it's not the point where, like, if someone cuts me off on the highway, I'm like, I'm grateful for you. And I could try to come up with a million reasons why, you know, maybe they saved me from a speeding ticket. Maybe they made me slow down and look at the flowers a little bit more. Whatever it is, I just, I now have an abundance of gratitude that no matter what comes up in my life, I'm grateful for it. If something comes up in my life and it's going awry, it's not going the way I thought it should, I'm grateful for it because I know that it's going to lead me down a different path that is going to serve me and my purpose better. And when I started implementing that onto the trauma that I had, that is where it really started to change my life. Because there was a clinical study. And when people go through traumas such as us, um, and such as, you know, whether it's any type of childhood abuse or whatever, whenever you go through trauma, your brain is chemically altered, correct? But when you start then attaching a positive reinforcement onto that, that's where you really start to amplify the empathy that you have and the resiliency that you have. And I'll try to get this study and send it on over to you. But that's where I started to notice how powerful gratitude is. See, gratitude is an amplifier. It acts as a magnet. Whatever you focus it on, it just grows. So if you focus it on, I am grateful for my health, guess what? You're going to get healthier. I am grateful that I came out of a storm and I still have a beautiful heart, your heart's going to get even bigger and beautiful, uh, even bigger and more beautiful. So that's where I started to learn that gratitude is such a powerful tool. And I still use it to this day. I'm, I'm going to use it until the day I die, because I think that that's just one of the best healing tools that I came across in my journey. <laughs> yeah, I love it. And, and my I, I fill out gratitude in my journal every day. Today, I wrote, I am grateful for community connection and commitment. And I write that frequently because that's such a, a cornerstone of what Think Unbroken is. But community plays such a powerful role in this journey. Connection, such a powerful role. Commitment, such a powerful role. But in this, we're still, we face adversity. We still face not only the adversity within ourselves that we kind of lay out as tracks ahead of us, the adversity from the world, people saying, how dare you? Who do you think you are to talk about this? Keep the family secret, the family secret. You have the whole nine, right? How do you push through the, the adversity to be in this position to say, I'm going to have this conversation, whether you like it or not? Yeah, so that's a big thing. And that kind of circles back to choosing yourself. And I was told from many years, do not talk about this. Don't talk about so-and-so. You're going to ruin their life. And I'm like, wait, you almost ruined mine. And the only reason why it's existing is because someone in some way ruined portions of your life and you didn't heal from them because you didn't talk about it. And then you went on to hurt me with it, right? So it goes back to you wanting to heal generational trauma. The only reason why it exists is because someone did not talk about it and no one put an end to it. And I came out of, came out of this storm and I did all of this healing and I realized that I now have a ton of courage because I was able to overcome what I did. Um, but then I also developed a very strong voice for myself. And once I started releasing the voice and and really letting go of the pain, like letting go, by the way, is not just, okay, not going to look at it. Letting go is like actually talking about it and physically letting it go from your body. And the more that you do that, you strengthen your voice, you strengthen your courage, you become fearless. And the more that we do that as the collective, we actually shed light onto these really dark subjects that no one wants to talk about, but only exist because no one's talking about them. So in the face of adversity, and like you said, it does come up. I mean, I recently had a family member reach out to me. And at first I'm like, oh my gosh, what is going to happen? You know, I kind of went back to like a typical trauma and panic response. I'm like, oh my God, what is going to happen? What are they going to say? What are they going to do to me? And I took some deep breaths and I, I really grounded myself in who I am 
and what I'm going to do. And so who I am goes back to the identity, comes back to being resilient and having courage. And what I'm going to do is set it free so that I can help others set themselves free. Very much so. And so with that is, you know, people will say, well, my mom had this or my grandma had this or my dad had this. It is, is there a reinforcement happening just in the way that we're using words around things like anxiety, depression, worry? Absolutely. Yes. So we can, you know, we can learn to be anxious from other people because they model it. And we learn the most from the people that were around the most. And so often people will learn these. They don't even know that they're learning it, but they'll learn these these subtle habits and that become not so subtle as they get older of worrying, you know, because they've learned it from family members. They've learned it from their communities. They've learned it from people that they've been around. Is so with your work and stepping into addiction and now looking at this from this whole body, mind, spirit approach, for lack of a better way to phrase it, one of the things that I, I love that you talk about is like trigger behavior reward and trying to navigate that loop. Can you go into that for us, dive into what that actually means and what people can do to understand their behavioral patterns a little bit better? I'd be happy to. And so you know, we talked a little bit about these positive and negative reinforcement mechanisms, right? These survival mechanisms, and that both of them are broken down into trigger behavior reward. And I think a reward can be a, a challenging concept for people because they're like, I, you know, worrying doesn't feel very rewarding. So sometimes it can be helpful to think about it in terms of trigger behavior result. Mm -hmm. And the behavior result relationship is really what drives a behavior. So from a scientific standpoint, this is called reward-based learning. And it's called that for a specific reason. When a behavior is rewarding, we're going to repeat it. If it's not rewarding, we're not going to repeat it. And so often people focus on triggers like, oh, if I could just, you know, if I could just get, you know, avoid my triggers, you know, this won't be a problem. That's not actually how our brains work. So from the trigger behavior result or reward standpoint, the critical piece of that is looking to see what the behavior is and how rewarding it is. So the more rewarding it is, the more likely we're we are to repeat it. And then when we repeat it enough, it can become a habit to the point where we don't even notice whether it's rewarding or not rewarding. Let's use a, a real world example. So you're saying back in the day, you were smoking two packs a day. How old were you when you started smoking? I was actually, so I started smoking weed at 12, yeah. but I started smoking cigarettes at 20. Okay, interesting. So you, when you started smoking weed is about the average age that most people start smoking cigarettes, okay? And, um, you know, like in the studies that my lab has done, the average age of onset's around 13. And I think, I saw a statistic recently, it's like 90 or 95% of people have started smoking before they are 20. So you're right, right within that window. And the reason I mentioned that is that, you know, at, cigarettes aren't advertised as like, this tastes great. You know, they're, you know, they're, they're advertised by our peers as, Hey, you want to be cool at school, you know, have, have smoke a joint, smoke a cigarette, whatever, whatever the cool kids are doing, or we do it as a way to rebel against our parents. Cause our parents say, Hey, you know, you can do whatever you want. Just don't smoke. And of course we're like, okay, then I'm going to smoke. So we do all of these things and we actually overcome all of the negative reinforcement that comes from nicotine because it is a toxin, right? So the first time somebody smokes a cigarette, they actually feel nauseated because their body's saying, dude, why are you putting toxin in me? This is actually, you know, I, I shouldn't be, you shouldn't be doing this. But we're like, the cool at school is better than, you know, and then this negative feeling that I'm feeling from smoking a cigarette. So we overcome it to the point where we become habituated and then, you know, I, ironically addicted to cigarettes. So the, the reward piece is this composite reward that's all based in context. It's not just the chemical, but then the chemicals themselves can reinforce the process. So nicotine drives dopamine uh, release. Um, and then, you know, the dopamine pathways are one of the main uh, ways that we, we get addicted to any substance. So any substance like alcohol, nicotine, you know, heroin, cocaine, um, all of these things, stimulants, they all release or uh, release dopamine or cause dopamine to increase in the synapses in our, 
in our brains. So all of that feeds back and says, hey, you know, do this again, even when <laughs> when it's not you know initially rewarding. And to the point where it becomes a habit, we're not even noticing all of the negative effects. Like we're not noticing that cigarettes taste like crap. So that's actually the first place that we have to start with breaking any habit or any addiction is really seeing what are we getting from this right now so we can actually tap into this reward-based learning system in our brain. So I recall a couple of years ago sitting and listening to you go over this and I had a thought and this thought felt a little bit more true after I had a conversation with with Dr. Lemke who wrote Dopamine, Dopamine Nation and recognized like, oh, wait, maybe dopamine, dopamine is actually the driving factor in pretty much all addiction, right? It's kind of easy to say that. What I'm curious about though, to what you just said is, you know, bringing that little bit of awareness around the reward, right? Or whatever the result is, but how do you, when you are in that moment, and I, I think this was my struggle, and I think this is probably the struggle for most people who face addiction, is you're like, I know it's killing me, take a drag. I know it's killing me, take a drink. How do you navigate that aspect of it? Because that's the place where I always would get stuck, especially in my, my mid-20s when I was starting my healing journey. I was like, oh my God, this cigarette makes me want to throw up everywhere, but that's okay, I'll throw up later, drag. Right. So what, how do you navigate that conversation in your head of like, I know this is really bad, but the habit of it is just pulling you back in. Yeah. You're highlighting this critical aspect of human experience is that we, we think that we can think our way out of stuff. You know, we, we mm. privilege, you know, this, you know, the irony of the enlightenment where it totally screwed up humans. <laughs> I love you know, that. If you, you know, you, Back at my wife's a, a Bible scholar, and so you know she keeps pointing out how you know there was all this great mystic spirituality, and then the Enlightenment came and killed it all because everybody got stuck in their heads. So whether you look at it from a religious perspective or a spiritual perspective or just a human perspective, we privilege our thinking brains to our detriment. There, mm. and the way I think of it is our feeling bodies are much stronger than our thinking brains. Just to give you a concrete example, our prefrontal cortex, which is the seat of our cognitive control, our thinking and planning brain, guess what happens when we get stressed? Which the, what is the first part of the brain that goes offline? Think, prefrontal think, cortex. Yes. <laughs> yes. So it's the youngest, it's the weakest part of our brain from an evolutionary perspective. We cannot trust it. What can we trust? We can trust these more basic processes and the more basic processes all feed back into our bodily sensations. When we're hungry, our stomach is going to rumble and make us go get food, right? We can think, oh, I shouldn't eat. You know, anybody that's been on a diet, you can ask them how well that goes, especially when they're stressed out. You know, there's this uh, saying I learned in this acronym I learned in my addiction psychiatry is HALT. When you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, you're more vulnerable to relapse. So we can't rely on this thinking and planning part of our brain. We can't rely on the cognitive control. And some neuroscientists and even philosophers would go as far as saying control is an illusion. You know, so whether it's an illusion or not, we don't need to go there. What we can do is look at the science and say, well, how do we learn what's the strongest part of our brain and how does that work? How can we tap into that? So we can tell ourselves, we can be sitting there taking a drag saying, I don't want to get cancer or we're coughing. You know, you see people smoke a cigarette and then cough. Where's that cough come from? <laughs> Smoking cigarettes, right? You know, so they're hacking up a lung as they're trying to get some more nicotine into their lungs. It's crazy. But the point there is, you know, we, we think that we can just tell ourselves to stop. Well, boy, would my outpatient practice be so much easier? If I could just tell my patients to stop, you know, it'd be one visit. They come in, I want to stop smoking. I'd just, you know, say, stop smoking, you know, and then they'd stop, stop overeating, stop worrying. And then, you know, I could, I could go find another job because all my patients would be cured. That's not how our brains work. You know, it's really about reward. So we've got it. You know, if we set up these habits through this reward-based learning system, 
why don't we tap into that to help people break habits and help them break out of addictions? So that's what I started testing in my clinic when I was struggling, you know, not only with anxiety, but helping my patients with addictions work with their addictions. Because I'd learned all this, you know, cognitive therapy stuff in residency, like, you know, you know, all this stuff where it's like, you got to change your cognitions. No, your, your thinking brain's the last thing that's going to help you out. You got to start with the reward system. So that's what we started doing. And I started testing it in my lab. And that's where I mentioned we got five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment for smoking. I'd actually done a study earlier. I did it in residency where we looked at mindfulness training as a way to help train people to pay attention and tap into that reward system. We got, um, we basically got better outcomes for alcohol and cocaine dependence um, than, than gold standard treatment. When we did these physiologic stress measures, people had, um, they were able to not get as caught up in these, in these personalized stressors uh, when they were, when they got mindfulness training as compared to cognitive training. So here, you know, it's really about not getting stuck in this, you know, this hubris, you know, this of like, oh, I can think my way out of this. No, if we could, nobody would have an issue with anything. They just stop. It's actually a very valid point. Um, and, and I love what you said about not being able to trust your prefrontal cortex in that moment, because in your brain in general, because I've been trying to really evaluate the idea that you can't trust your brain over the last probably six or seven months. So it feels more new to me. And instead going like, can I trust my gut? Can I trust my intuition? Is that truly where understanding lives and exists? And so with that, and I, and I appreciate you, what I feel like in that is confirmation because I've really been on this for a while. What I'm wondering is, what were some of the things that you were seeing, not only in your own anxiety, but in the research and the studies that you were doing that is tangible that other people can apply to their life in perhaps a simple way? Yeah, well, after, geez, decades of work, I, you know, it gets simpler and simpler. You know, the more you learn, the more Occam's razor is really true. Like the simplest possible explanation is usually the right one. That has been true over and over and over. So we, I started noticing this three-step process and I write about it in the Unwinding Anxiety book, but basically it's about, you know, the basic idea is if we don't know how our minds work, we can't possibly work with them. So the first step is being able to map our own habit loops. Like what's the trigger? What's the behavior? What's the result? If we can't see what the process is, we're going to be stuck in it. We're going to be, you know, tumbled by it. So that's actually pretty straightforward. And I have my patients do this at, at intake. I start listening for these things. And then we map these processes out together. It takes 30 seconds. We even have a free habit mapper that anybody can download from, I think it's just mapmyhabit.com, where you, know, you can download this PDF, print it out, and start mapping out your own habits. The second step is a little more involved, but it's a critical piece, which is really tapping into this reward system in our brain. I'll give you an example and then and explain how this works. So my lab just did a study with our Eat Right Now app where we had people who were overeating. We had them, we basically put this, what we call a craving tool, into built it into the app so we could measure the reward value and help people pay attention to how rewarding or unrewarding the behavior was. And the idea is, if you don't see that something's unrewarding, you're going to keep doing it. If you see that it's not rewarding, you get what in neuroscience is called the negative prediction error because it's not as rewarding as you predicted, as you expected. And then you start to become disenchanted. You're like, you know, if somebody smokes a cigarette and I have them pay attention when they smoke and they realize that cigarettes taste like crap, they get that negative prediction error. And so tangibly, we have, I have patients in my clinic pay attention when they smoke. I have patients who are overeating pay attention when they eat. And I have them ask themselves with each bite, is this more rewarding or less rewarding than the last bite? So we did this study with this craving tool in the Right Now app, and we found, are you ready for this? It only takes 10 to 15 times of somebody really paying attention as they overeat for that reward value to drop below zero and for them to start changing their behavior. So it doesn't mm -hmm. take long, it just takes awareness. So that's the second step. Anybody can do that. They can pay attention when they're doing the behavior. And I have them simplify it to this. Ask yourself a simple question. What am I getting from this? Right? Not thinking, what am I getting from this? But feeling, what am I getting from this? So the folks in our study, 
they were feeling that when they overeat, it doesn't feel good. My patients in my clinic, they are tasting what cigarettes taste like. Cigarettes taste like crap. They start to become disenchanted with them. We just actually published a study with our with our smoking app. Same thing, you know, where people are they're becoming disenchanted with the behavior simply by paying attention. So that's tangible that anybody can do that too. The third step, I think of it as finding the bigger, better offer. So if our brains are going to do things that are rewarding and they're going to stop doing things that are not rewarding, then let's give them something that's rewarding that's not just a substitution for what they just did. I've had plenty of patients who've come to me and said, you know, I quit cocaine, but I substituted exercise. And now I overexercise. I'm addicted to exercise, right? The, the process itself is the problem, you know? Um, mm. It's not necessarily, certainly the substances can be problematic, but it's when we're caught in the process that those are problematic. I mean, cigarettes are never helpful, but it's not, you know, it's not that, that uh, opioids themselves, you know, like uh, taking a pain pill is going to kill somebody. No, it's when somebody's addicted to that. So we've got to find that bigger, better offer. And so here, often um, there people are taking substances, for example, because they've got these negative loops running in their heads about how they're a bad person or their life's awful. Often people have had really terrible life circumstances. They've had a, a troubling uh, childhood or their current environment. There's something in there that says, hey, this is bad. I want to make it go away. And they have that use that substance. They drink alcohol, they use opiates, they do whatever to make it go away. And that has been, been the biggest bestest offer that they've had so far. Yet, if they can pay attention and see, oh, this is really not serving me, and we can give them something that's more rewarding, that doesn't have those negative consequences, then they win the game. So here, you know, with addiction, for example, it's finding connection, right? That is so much more rewarding than, you know, uh, running to mother's little helper <laughs> or whatever, whatever the helper is because that helper is only going to help for a little bit. And then it's going to make us want more and more and more. And then we're chasing that on top of it. So kindness, for example, if we beat ourselves up, what is it like when we're kind to ourselves? Well, kindness feels better than judging ourselves. So there already is an intrinsic bigger, better offer. If we're disconnected uh, from community, from family, from friends, finding that connection is a really strong way and that a much better, big, much bigger, better off. I would say that is the biggest, bestest offer of all is finding those things that are not only uh, better than, than the substance or the behavior, but also rewarding and fulfilling and, and generative, like where they pay it forward. When we're connected, everybody benefits from connection. One of the things that, that was really fascinating to me about what you do when going into rest was thinking about, and I could be wrong here, so let's go into this, yeah. you know, the parallel possibly of other emotional behavioral changing, um, the word that I want to use just went out of my brain, that's fine, um, avenues will be the word that I use instead, um, like EMDR. Like, yes. talk, talk us through the process of, of rest and and how that plays a role in this journey of healing. Yeah. Um, well, when you look at, you brought up EMDR, there's so many things that are out there today. Um, emotional freedom technique, which is tapping, uh, known as tapping, EMDR, cognitive behavioral therapy, all these things that are out there. The one critical, they're, they're all great. And they're definitely you know, the new, the new psychology is neuroemotional psychology to really understand that these are patterns that live in our subconscious mind, in our parahippocampus, in our amygdala, and they trigger the entire body. You know, some, some amazing books have been re written, like The Body Keeps a Score and also Oprah's latest book, um, What Happened to You? really looking into childhood trauma amazing studies have been done like childhood if you if you look at um let me let me do a little bit of history like if if this is how important tra trauma is to understand and and this is a study that was done by and you, i'm sure you know it between the cdc and kaiser permanente looking at adverse childhood experiences now 
they defined adverse childhood experiences from the perspective of an adult, like incarceration, divorce, you know, abuse, serious things. Child children expand, ex, experience trauma at even in even much more trivial things. But let's just talk about this study. The study showed that if you have more than you know six of these early childhood experiences, then your life expectancy is reduced by twenty fold. Compare that to like smoking, which is reduces your life expectancy by tenfold. And smoking, I know, is probably the one that's known the most for reducing life expectancy. But trauma is, you know, far outweighs what smoking can do for you. So absolutely, it's important. So these newer methods like EMDR and things, they start to look at how to manage the neuronal connections that trigger those reactions. And that's a great start. These are great starts. Where rest differs is that we have a way, this all began some, somewhere. When did this begin? When did this, when was the original event for each person that we can go back to? Like, let's say today you, you found a job that you finally love, you found a career path that you finally love and everything was going well. And then, I don't know, six months into it, suddenly the rug got pulled out from underneath you and you decide to tell and you say to yourself this happens to me all the time every time something happens because you're now talking about a belief system that you have and you start saying you know every time things start to look good the rug gets pulled out from underneath me why does this keep happening and people notice these patterns in their life and they go this always happens to me well you could go to a therapist you can do some temporary relief with tapping or emdr and whatnot and generalize what might have happened maybe in childhood and then try to release that through, you know, moving your eyes and whatnot. What rest does, though, is it pinpoints exactly with a, we have a step-by-step method of being able to talk literally to your subconscious mind and play like this 21 question game and figure out how old were you? who was with you, what happened, and you've forgotten all about this memory. This is called an implicit memory because you, you don't remember the who, what, where, and when, but your body remembers the milieu of emotions that you experience. When we say stress, it's really a milieu of negative emotions that you're experiencing, and it's very particular and it's very nuanced. And then that pattern get, got stuck in your body. And so whenever something smells the same, feels the same, your brain is just like a look, a pattern recognition machine. And it goes, this smells and feels like what happened to you when your mom took you out of the bathtub when you weren't ready. Now, that was a trivial ex experience, really, from an adult perspective. You were in the bathtub and your mom said, it's time to get out and have dinner. But you created this whole imaginary world in your bathtub. You were four years old. You were having a good time. Life was good. And you, you knew that if your mother took you out, that would be the end of this complex imaginary world you had created in your bathtub. And then you have this emotional experience about that. You feel betrayed, you feel, you know, uh, lost, you feel threatened, you feel fear, you, you feel like that you're not in control of the situation. You feel all these complex things because we are first and foremost emotional beings. What adults don't realize is that even a baby in utero is emotionally highly complex. They may not be able to talk. They can't represent their thoughts, but their emotions are as complex as they will ever be because they don't have a logical filter to filter out what is actually happening in their life. So they're having this highly emotional experience. You're having this highly emotional experience getting out of the bathtub. And then next time something gets taken away from you before you're ready, you fire up that same emotion. Now that pattern gets stronger. And over and over again, every time something feels the same, you fire up that old pattern. And that pattern just gets stronger to the point where it's so automatic that when you lose the job in the present moment or that career path, the story that I started with, right, 
you think it's all about today, but it's not. It's about when you got taken out of the bathtub. And what rest does is goes back and identifies that's what happened. That's all that happened. And it's a non-threatening, non-invasive way to actually rewire your, I call it non-invasive brain surgery because you can do fMRI scans and realize that now the same issue does not trigger your brain the same way. And we, we, we cut out that original, we, we heal, we emotionally soothe and heal that original experience. You do it yourself and it's, it doesn't take a lot of work. It's just a step-by-step process. It's not like this huge work, hard, emotionally dra- draining kind of process by any means. It's simple and easy. And when you do it, at the end of it, you're like, oh, it's gone. That emotion, that emotional experience that I'm having, and it's gone for good. It's gone for good because we've soothed. And, and this is this kind of, a, I think that there was a study in, the, I want to say around 2017 that was published showing that once we open up one of these implicit memories, we have about 15 to 20 minutes to reprogram it. And that's the window we take advantage. We open it up in, in a rest session, we reprogram it, and then it can never haunt you again. And that's basically what happens during a rest session. My first thought is like, there are so many places we can go in this right now. Yeah. Um, one being like, we're tapping into the matrix, which I love. So let's go into this. Early on in this show, about three and a half, almost four years ago, one of the things I talked about was the ACE study and going into the depths of it because recognizing while I don't think it's the end all be all to this conversation, I think it's a jump off point. And and the reason why is because understanding that research actually changed my life uh, as I am in the small minority of people who have a score of 10. Yeah. And that's so the entirety of this show, which everyone who listens to the show knows the truth started very selfishly. Because I was like, I need to find solutions. I'm looking at my life. It's it's imploding. I've tried every modality, the word I was looking for earlier, on trying to go through this journey. I mean, you name it. And I have done it, literally all of it. And And I came to realize, like, unless I got deep, deep, deep into understanding the research, understanding the brain, understanding neuroplasticity and psychology and reading and understanding books created by, like, Bessel van der Kolk and Pete Walker and Gabor Mate, like I was for sure going to die within the next 10 years. That's where I thought I would end up at. And I've got a lot of comorbidity factors that I would say probably make that accurate. You know, one of the things that I, I think about quite frequently is there, I personally find that I have an, an, a memory like an elephant. I know a few people who do. To me, I go, oh, that's the ultimate defensive mechanism for survival. And one of the things I found very interesting is that the higher people have landed on that ACE survey, the better their memory is. And so it's not so nuanced as it would be for many people. And I have not studied this. I cannot prove it. This is just me going through this process of now and coaching thousands of people. What I'm curious about, and especially within REST, is understanding this brain a little bit better and going a little bit deeper into it. I'd love for you to break down these three states of the brain, because I think that if we can get into understanding what it really means when we're talking about these neural emotional states, we can create some massive context for people in the way that I needed it four years ago and 10 years ago in starting this journey. Perfect. Okay. So this was a concept that was first put forth by Zwei Kwa, and she said, okay, she calls brain 1.0, basically the Godzilla brain. I call it the lizard brain. Other people have called it the lizard brain. It's the survival brain. It's the one that people talk about, the flight or fight brain. And what happens during fight or flight and with your brain is, as I said, so these traumatic memories that I just talked about from the child's perspective, these traumatic memories get laid down in the parahippocampus they, because the hippocampus isn't quite developed, you know, during the first five years. So it takes a little while for us to build the hippocampus where autobiographical memories, where we start to remember the who, what, the what, the why, the where, those kinds of things. But before then, we're kind of in a hypnotic state and we don't remember all those things because the hippocampus is kind of jello still. So, 
So we kind of lay down these emotional, purely emotional memories in the parahippocampus, which lives right near the amygdala. And when you're stressed, what happens is your heart rate variability changes. What is your heart rate variability? Well, if I say your heart rate is 70, for some people, it's beat to beat at 70. It's like the heart is keeping a beat. Every beat is like, you know, at the right interval. If it was keeping a rhythm, if it's keeping a rhythm, it's a nice, good, high heart rate variability. Now, if it's seven, it can also be 70 because you average it out over a minute, but it can be like, all over the map, like not keeping a beat, but mathematically can average out over a minute to be 70 still. So it's not the heart rate, but the heart rate variability that tells us how in sync our body is. And the, it is the heart that rules the brain. So 90% of the information goes from the heart to the brain, not the other way around. The brain does not rule the heart, the heart rules the brain. So when our heart rate variability is high, that means we are joyful, excited, loving, appreciative, those kinds of emotions. You know, you can do meditations. The Heart Math Institute really put forth this idea of, you know, increasing your heart rate variability by regularly practicing appreciation, joy and appreciation for 15 minutes a day in the morning or maybe in the evening, just regular little intervals and you can increase your heart rate variability. But when you're stressed, what happens, the first thing that changes is your heart rate variability. It starts to go all over the map. Your heart is no longer keeping a beat. That sends a messy signal to the brain, which means like normally when, you're, when your heart is, heart rate variability is high, you're sending a smooth pattern. You have access to your prefrontal cortex. You can think logically. You can also think creatively. All these things are there. But in brain 1.0, what happens is that you get stressed, which triggers an old memory, like I described, like the bathtub incident in the hippocampus. And the, and the information no longer goes through the brain, but it goes straight back down the vagus nerve into the body. And you have a physiological stress response. That's brain 1.0. It's a what? flight or fight response. Does that make Why sense? Why does it skip going to the brain and directly into the body? Because the heart is telling the brain we're in danger. Right. So it's an autonomic response. So it's it's... A, exactly. It becomes an autom autonomic response in the body and you're in a heightened state and you think somebody's threatening you or something. Your life is threatened or something is at stake. So you go, you go into that survival lizard brain mode, which is the, you know, the amygdala takes over and the amygdala is, is the oldest part of the brain. That's why it's called the lizard brain. We share it with lizards, you know. So it's, it's the old part of the brain. So we go into a survival mode and we try to take, you know, we're trying to do big things in our adult life, but we start to act like a three-year-old and we go into a flight or fight pattern. Okay. This used to be written off as like, oh, it's just because that amygdala got, you know, got uh, turned on because you feel threatened. Well, it's not simp as simple as that. You actually triggered an exact memory of an, as something that happened to you when you were a child. And that's why you're having that response, okay? Now, brain 2.0 is a little bit more evolved than when we're, brain 2.0, you know, a lot of high performers operate in brain 2.0. That's when you figured out how to activate your dopamine circuits, like how to get an award, a reward, like, you know, Everything from becoming addicted to your cell phone for the likes that, that gives you a dopamine response to actually being productive in life and creating goals and accomplishing them gives you a dopamine response. And you can, so that is what Zoe Kwa calls the teenage brain, brain 2.0, that you find a carrot and you chase after it. And a lot of people do a lot of things to keep that brain 2.0 going. Like, how can I create the next reward for myself? How can I get there? How can I stay motivated? How can, et cetera, et cetera. So brain 2.0 is great when it's working. However, we tend to sometimes overshoot our goals or say yes to too much. And we create an environment where we're, we become overwhelmed trying to chase our own goals or something traumatic actually happens in life. 
and boom, you get thrown back into brain 1.0. So what I see is people really oscillating in life between brain 1.0 and brain 2.0. They're going after their dreams and goals. Something happens, they get thrown back into brain 1.0. Then they regroup, go on vacation, go see a therapist, go to a lot of yoga classes, they get back into brain 2.0. And then something happens, they go back to brain 1.0. 2.0, 1.0, we just go back and forth, back and forth. And there's this like cycle. But every time there's a cycle, those stress patterns are getting stronger because they're neuronal patterns. And every time they get fired, you, we grow more, what I call mild, the, 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 the neurons get stronger basically. And then the signal travels faster and faster each time. It, does that, does that become exponential? Um, somewhat like it's the difference between like, you know, be, the way I would hit a tennis ball versus a, a tennis pro is a tennis pro is going to respond 400 times faster than me because their neurons are so much faster. So their, their neurons are, the, the, it's kind of like a, a, an electrical cable that is highly insulated, makes the electrical signal travel all the faster. So they have very highly insulated neurons built for those neurons that fire up their hand swinging the bat, you know, the swinging the racket, right? So, so similarly, our stress patterns can get stronger with time and, and rep. Repetition makes these circuits stronger and stronger and stronger. Thank you so much for listening to Think Unbroken. Please share this episode with someone who could use it and help us move forward in our mission of ending generational trauma in our lifetime. And if you would, please take five seconds to pop on iTunes or Spotify, hit that five star, leave a review. And you can also reach out to us on social at Michael Unbroken or at Think Unbroken. And of course, you can check out our YouTube channel at Think Unbroken. Thank you for being a part of Unbroken Nation, my friends. And until next time, be unbroken. Hey, my friends, we will be right back to the show. But I have a question for you. Are you struggling with the impact of childhood trauma? Well, know that you're not alone. I'm here to let you know that I'm starting a brand new weekly coaching group that includes a year of live coaching, accountability, support, habit and goal setting, and more. I'm starting a wait list for the group right now, and I'm only taking a handful of people. And I'll let you know that through this personalized coaching, we'll work together to help you understand how your childhood trauma has shaped your beliefs, behaviors, emotions, and will help you create a roadmap for healing and growth. Right now, you can schedule an absolutely free coaching session with me and get put on the wait list if you go to thinkunbroken.com. My friends, it's your time to turn your trauma into triumph, breakdowns into breakthroughs, and become the hero of your own story. And I'm here to support you in doing that. Just go to thinkunbroken.com to register for a free coaching call with me and to get put on the wait list for the brand new weekly coaching program. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.